Okay, so there's a few slides going to be up. Um, don't be offended by the title. Um, I'll be explaining that. Okay, so there seems to be a gap between what we believe and profess as Christians and the way that we live our lives. When we're born again by God's Spirit, we become a new creation, born into the family of God, and with that we have new affections and a new desire to live for God. And our new God-given faith should be expressed in fruitful lives or good works for God. So we're a new creation, we have new lives, and we should have a new way of living. And as believers, we desire to please God, don't we? We desire to, we want to resist sin. We make every effort not to give in to temptation. We meditate our thoughts and minds on Christ. We make sure we spend sufficient time reading the Bible and have intimate prayer times. We stand in opposition to any agendas that are forced upon us, like abortion or gay marriage that goes against God's design. We're careful with what we watch and we're pretty good at spotting the big sins in our life. And most of us could point out false doctrine a mile away. Yet among all this, there is something subtle at work in our culture, something that is slowly but surely making its way into the church without most of us even aware of it. Something that seems to be creating this gap between what we profess we believe and the lifestyle that we should, uh, that we should be living. Let me just read uh, a short story from a writer called Os Guinness. It's a story from the old Soviet Union. Lots of items were being stolen from a joinery factory in the old USSR by the workers. So a guard was put on the gate. On the first night that the guard was there, out comes a worker with a suspicious-looking sack on a wheelbarrow. What have you got there? asked the guard. It's just wood shavings, replies the worker. The guard shouts, all right, tip it out. Sure enough, it was just wood shavings. And so the guard let him pass. This happened night after night, and the guard knew that there was something going on, but he could not figure it out. Eventually, he was so annoyed and intrigued that he got hold of the, the, the worker, and he said, I know that you are up to something, and it's driving me mad. Tell me, and I'll let you go. What are you stealing? The worker smiled and answered, wheelbarrows. <clears throat> so, subconsciously, this belief of self-centered living and another term known as subjectivism, now I don't really like big words, so basically what that means is our subjective thinking is more important than the objective or absolute truth. So what we think is more important than what God thinks. This way of living and thinking has gone under the radar and it is subtly making its way into the church. Our feelings have become the centre of the universe. It's all about us. Nothing is as important than looking after number one. And what follows this is insensitivity and hostility to others. We care more about ourselves and less about others. And what eventually happens is this can lead on to folding in or compromising on big issues like homosexuality or abortion or whatever it may be. And before we know it, we can even allow false teachings into our midst. 
You see, it always starts with self. But it doesn't always need to show itself in aggressive, uncaring ways. We can be so consumed with our own lives and the pace with which we live them that we feel like we just can't keep up with it or worry with no time to think about anybody else's life or problems because we have enough problems of our own to deal with. You see, one of the reasons Paul writes to Titus is to specifically show these new believers that as new creations in Christ, they will no longer seek to please themselves, but seek to serve others in love. The old nature of a man should be put to death with all of its selfish desires. But to us who have been believers, it's the opposite. We can start to be influenced by the culture, by its worldview, by its messages. We can unknowingly allow it to come through the back door of the church if we are not alert. I believe this book that we're going to look at is beneficial in helping us combat the self-centered church. We can say no to self-obsessed living and pursue good works towards others in the name of God. Let me give you a brief introduction. Um, So this book, or this letter, was written to Titus while he was on the island of Crete. Okay, so that's the largest of the Greek islands It's about 160 miles long. It's covered with mountainous terrain. It has numerous harbours for the various boats that come and go on the Mediterranean. But Crete itself was saturated with myths and stories of the Greek gods. Legend has it that Zeus was born in a cave in the Cretan mountains. King Minos, one of Zeus's sons, created a labyrinth underneath the palace on Crete, which housed the fabled Minotaur. You've probably heard of that, half-man half-bull type creature. Numerous shrines and idols existed for these so-called gods. In Acts 19, we're introduced to the workers who made silver shrines for the goddess Artemis. So Crete was no stranger to these stories. But the Cretans were notorious for lying, for cheating, for being untrustworthy and greedy. To Cretanize or Cretize meant that that person was lying, he was fraudulent, he was a cheat. Paul notes um, later on in the book of Titus that one of their own prophets called them liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. You see, their main focus in life was for themselves and they would do anything to gain the advantage, cut corners, rip people off, falsify information. They were self-indulgent and did not care for others. And yet a gospel seed had somehow been planted on Cretan soil and a young church or a group of churches had been established. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon the apostles, we are told that there were Cretan Jews there who heard about the mighty works of God in their own language and more than likely returned home to spread this good news. Paul had also somehow visited Crete but Writers aren't clear when this happened or for how long. It could have been before his shipwreck in Acts 27, 28. It could have been that sort of time, but we don't, we don't know. Why was the letter written to Titus? Well, Paul wrote the letter around AD 62 to 66, sometime after he wrote 1 Timothy. The main theme of the book is authenticity, living and behaving as an authentic Christian. But there's four main points that we could probably split into, which will appear on the screen. So to set in order the organisation of the churches, 
to set in order the behaviour of believers and to encourage good works, to warn against false teachers, and to encourage the message of sound doctrine. This letter is usually grouped with 1st and 2nd Timothy, and it would be considered the pastoral epistles, which namely would have been used to encourage pastors in their churches. However, this letter has great relevance for all believers, young and old, in the faith. Within these first few verses that we've just read together, Paul's opening remarks lifts our focus and attention on God's kingly and sovereign authority over all things and severely challenges the sphere of self-centered living and subjectivism. So what we're going to do now is we're going to work through the verses and see what Paul's been saying, what, what Paul's saying to us. Now obviously Paul was specifically writing to Titus, but obviously through the Holy Spirit these writings are for us now and we can put them into practice and learn a lot from them. So we're going to be looking at God's servant. So Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul starts his letter as was the custom of the day, starting with your name and then your credentials. Now, as far as I'm aware, Titus is the only book where Paul mentions that he is a servant of God in his introduction. So a servant or bond servant or slave, he is a slave to God. The word used here is the word doulos, which means the lowest of slaves. His life is completely consumed by God. No longer a slave to self, but a slave to God. He was dramatically changed from his zealous hatred of Christians to his zealous desire to spread the word of Christ to others. Even in this opening remark, the word servant would have been a hard-hitting statement to make to the Cretans, who would have been so focused on themselves and their self-serving ideology. This title, Servant, also has deeper connections to the long succession of servants in the Old Testament. Moses, Joshua, David, they were all called servants of God. Paul puts himself in the same category as these Old Testament figures as being used as the chosen people for God's purposes and plans. To be a servant of God is not a shameful title, but a great title of honour. God signifies one God, not servant of the gods. The Cretans believed in numerous gods. There was a God for everything, and they believed that these gods controlled different parts of their life, so they would pray for help and protection. Paul makes it clear that there is only one true God. He's also an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is a messenger, a representative one who possesses all power and authority of the sender. He belongs to the king or country that sends him out. In Acts 9, it's noted that he is God's chosen instrument to carry his name. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So here's Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul's calling as a servant and an apostle was to stir up 
build up and encourage the faith of God's chosen people. Now if we look at Hebrews 11, it says that faith is being sure of the things hoped for and certain of the things not yet seen. So we can be sure and we can be certain. And we are sure and certain in what God says in his word. Believers are called God's elect. They're the people that God has chosen to be his holy and beloved people. They have been elected to be holy or set apart. God calls his chosen people out of the world and away from the old life it offered, the old life of sin and death to the new life that he offers, one of righteousness, godliness, eternal life. So Paul's a servant, an apostle, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, in the New King James Version of the Bible, it uses the word acknowledge or acknowledgement. And I, I do have to say I prefer that word because knowledge is a noun, okay? So we need to know the truth. It's not just a head knowledge, but it's a heart knowledge. It's one that uh, captivates us. We, we listen to it. We study it. We meditate on it. But acknowledge is a verb. And if you remember your old... Uh, English lessons, a verb is a doing word. So something has to, you have to respond to something, okay? So we agree with it, we confirm, and we practice this truth. Let me give you a, a brief example. In the fire service, if we have to carry out a search and rescue scenario, we have to have the knowledge of the search procedures and techniques. We need to know how to search effectively. Now, if our officer in charge come to me and said, right, here's what, here's what room you need to go into, here's what you need to do, we're not just going to stand and look at him. We acknowledge what he says, and then we're going to get to work. Okay, so there's a, an understanding of what's being asked, and then doing something about it. You see, Jesus says in John, 6, John 14, verse 6, actually the kids could probably tell you this, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, as the truth, Jesus is the reality of all of God's promises. It's about the gospel, the good news for mankind, that we were lost in our sin, unable to save ourselves, and yet God reached out to save us through his Son. In essence, it is the gospel that leads a man to live a godly life, <clears throat> which has tremendous implications in our daily life but our belief in God does not rest on fallible reasonings or popular opinions but on the very absolute objective truth itself about God which awakens the soul to God purifies the believer and creates a pursuit after godliness so godliness simply put is believing God then obeying and respecting him if you wanted to flesh that out a bit, it's basically fearing God, loving God, and then desiring God. So let me ask you a question. Are we sufficiently exposing ourselves, ourselves to God's truth, whether it be church gatherings, whether it be daily nourishment in God's word, or suitable conversations around Christian brothers and sisters that center on who God is 
and what he's doing in our lives. You see, this, this godliness actually does affect something. It changes behavior. There should be a lifestyle change as a result of being exposed to this wonderful truth. It takes the focus off ourselves and onto others. But you know, sometimes I think we've made the pursuit of God out to be some sort of emotionless, unloving, academic, intellectual exercise. We're simply chasing the knowledge of God, but we want nothing to do with the relational of involvement of pursuing the person of God. I frequently fall into that trap of pursuing knowledge from books and Christian authors rather than a deep and satisfying relationship. It's almost like we want to study God instead of loving him. In hope of eternal life. So this is God's promise. When we use the word hope, it means something different to how the Bible uses it. So for example, if I say, I hope we get good weather this summer, I'm saying it with a degree of uncertainty because in Northern Ireland, it's probably not going to happen. But biblical hope is true and absolute. Romans 8 says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In another translation, it says, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. I like that word, resting. We can rest on God's unbreakable promise of the absolute certainty of eternal life with him everlasting. And we have that eternal life. If you're saved, it begins at the moment you're, you accept that salvation. However, the full-blown implications of, of this life will not be evident this side of heaven. You see, our world and its civilizations are fall, falling short with promises that can't be fulfilled, plans that can never be completed, dreams and visions of a peaceful world that will never be accomplished. And yet this eternal life is a new life in a kingdom that will not fail us one in which God has freely invited us to be part of. I wonder, do you ever stop in your daily life and lift your mind beyond the struggles and the difficulties and the stresses? And I wonder if you think about heaven, the coming ages, the heavenly glory, seeing Christ face to face. We have a great hope as the people of God. One writer says, The Christian gospel does not in the first place offer men an intellectual creed or a moral code. It offers them life, the very life of God. So God has given us this hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies. Now can God do all things? Is everything possible for God? Well, the answer is no, because it is impossible for him to lie. Numbers 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Hebrews 6, it is impossible for God to lie. 
You see, this culture on the island of Crete was based on the premise that lying will gain you the upper hand. Paul, putting this absolute truth at the start of the letter, would have got their attention and have been profoundly challenging to this Cretan culture who was so focused on their selfish gain. Lying was like their native language. They were compulsive liars. It was part of their everyday life and a sinful habit that they nurtured. Yet these Cretan sinful lifestyles didn't reflect the power of a changed life under the gospel. So this hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. One of the commentaries notes that eternal life was purposed before the world began, literally before the ages of time existed, and was promised actually in time. So before the construct of time even existed, before time and space came into, existed, came into existence, sorry, God purposed his promise. It's probably quite difficult for us to, to grasp this, but God, in his own private counsels, before the universe came to be, gave word to a promise for the benefit of those who would believe him. You see, God keeps his promises. No matter when he makes them, he always keeps them. He said to Noah that there was a flood coming that came. He promised Abraham a son. He didn't believe it but he came. The promised land, the promised rescuer from the start of Genesis. He has a 100% track record of making promises and keeping them so we can place our hope in this promise. And at the proper time, he manifested in his word through the preaching, verse 3, just the start of verse 3, God's word. Other translations say, at the time of God's choosing, at his appointed season. You see, the whole of history was a preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the events and the symbols for the coming king. The Spirit of God was being active and preparing the hearts of mankind for the coming of Christ. In other words, God was educating people before the event. You see, we don't just wake up one day and Christmas happens. Or we don't just go on holiday the next day. We need to prepare and get ourselves ready for those events. God was fulfilling the promise of the coming Saviour that was made in the Garden of Eden. But there's a guy called William Barclay who has made some... Um, some notes here on the historical context of what he means at, at the proper time. So this gospel, this good news message needed to be spread and it came here at the proper time to be uh, spoken of and the message sent out. So in those times when the apostles were spreading the word of God, this is the, the, the time he was talking. So there was a common language, which was Greek, which was the language of trade, business and literature. There were no frontiers or borders because of the vast Roman Empire. Travel was easy compared to nowadays. It would have been very slow, but it was safe due to the security that the Roman Empire brought to road and sea routes. 
It was a time of peace under the, the Pax Romana, which was a time of Roman peace between most nationalities. So you could see how the gospel could be quickly spread in all directions because of these things. He also notes that, the, that it was a, a world conscious of its needs. The old systems of faith had broken down and the new ideas were just too complicated for people. In their inner man, they seemed to deeply desire saving. The culture was saturated with origin stories and legends of the Greek gods. It was always at the forefront of their mind. In Acts 14, Paul heals a man and straight away the guys shout out, Zeus has come in the likeness of men. So these things were at the very forefront of their mind and the heart. This word manifested means to become clear or in other translations brought his word to light. From the creation of the world, through every prophet, promise, every deed and action from God, it all led to Jesus Christ. The power of God is now revealed in the very words which are active and living, which are powerful to change a man. And the amazing thing is about these words, they're not limited to just a church service. Although it is important that we come here together as a community of believers under the word of God. But these words of life can be discussed in your workplace. When you bump into someone in a shop, at school, university, while having break time, these words can be spoken and discussed and marveled at any time in our daily lives. The other day, I was sitting with the guys in work, and out of the blue, this guy said, so is it true, Andrew, that when people go to hell, it's for eternity? Just like that. We weren't even talking about it. And it makes me think, you know, people out there have questions, they want to talk about it. Don't be afraid to take the opportunities. So at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. So this word entrusted basically means assigned the responsibility of doing something. So God was putting his trust in Paul to carry out the mission with his strength, just like God entrusts us with our responsibilities, with children, with family, with whatever we have. Obviously, this was a, a higher, um, he had to be more responsible in this and spreading the word. But Acts 26 tells us what Paul's job description was. So Jesus says this to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but arise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people, from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was God's chosen instrument and God commanded him to carry out this very important mission of spreading the good news of Christ. Notice how he says, God our Saviour. And if you look at the end of verse 4, he then says, Christ Jesus our Saviour. Paul seems to interchange between talking about Jesus being the Saviour and God being the Saviour. 
We sometimes hear about God being spoken about in the Old Testament as a cruel, stern and severe God. And then when we hear about Christ, he's the gentle, meek and mild son. They seem so different. Yet behind all of this is the unchanging love of God to rescue sinful man. It is the triune God at work, and each part of the Godhead had their role to play, their role to play in the amazing rescue of mankind. Verse 4 to Titus, my true child in a common faith. There he is, the man himself that the letter is named after, Titus. I'm not going to spend too much time on him here because he'll probably be talked about throughout. But I'll just give you a few wee um, bullet points here on who he was. So he was a Gentile. He was a Greek. He was, because it says he's, the tr- he's his true child in his common faith, a lot of commentators think that he was led to Christ by Paul. He served as a co-worker with Paul for over 15 years. He was Paul's go-to man in sorting out the issues in the church, especially the Corinthian church. And then he was left to sort out the churches in Crete. So this sort of gives the impression that he was quite a a, a reliable um, and trustworthy man. And also the fact that they had some real issues in Corinthians and here as well. He probably could have put his foot down and been quite firm. So he was Paul's go-to man when they had issues and troubles and he went and he got the job done. Common, a common faith means a shared faith, the same faith that we all share as believers. You see, Titus was a Greek and Paul was a Jew, yet their faith in the Lord Jesus cut across all racial and cultural boundaries. It doesn't matter who we are, where we come from or what we do, we are all the same through Christ Jesus. And we each share in this common faith. This common, simple faith that works in the older man as it does the younger man. It's for mums and grannies and children and co-worker and friends. The same faith that changes hearts and minds brings, and brings us all into the family of God. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. As was the custom of the day, Paul gives his greetings to Titus. But notice how Paul starts the letter by calling Jesus, Jesus Christ, and then he ends it with Christ Jesus. You see, to say Jesus Christ, we we of course know that Jesus Christ is Christ Jesus, is the same person. But to say Jesus Christ, there's a very slight emphasis on the Lord's humanity. You see, Paul was a a devout Jew and he would have known the scriptures about the Messiah as foretold by the prophets. He would have been deeply versed about this coming Messiah. Throughout the book of Acts, Paul is always trying to reason within the synagogues, trying to convince the Jews that this Jesus was God's anointed king, the one the Old Testament scriptures point to. The prophets, the promises, the greatest revelation of God's love comes together in the person of Christ Jesus, the God-man. But as we, so verse 1, Jesus Christ, and then we work through these massive themes. So we have faith, we have election, we have truth, we have godliness, 
We have hope, eternal life, God's promise, God's timing, God's word, grace, peace. Then it ends with Christ Jesus, which has a slight emphasis on the Lord's divinity. Jesus was a human, fully human man who was fully God, the Messiah, the promised King. As I sort of try and wrap this up and draw it to a conclusion, I want you to notice the repetition in this short passage. The word God is mentioned five times. I want you to see the solid foundation that Paul is setting here. Do you see the basis for the rest of the book? If Titus is about uh, proclaiming sound doctrine and, and good works and behaving as an authentic Christian, then it all starts with what God has done for us. Good works do not earn us salvation. Good works are a response to salvation. I keep using that wee thing in work because they always say, oh, you're a good living guy. And I'm like, no, no, this is why we live this way. See, Paul wants those that live on Crete to see that. So this gap between our belief and our lifestyle, the more we allow self to fill in the middle, it'll get wider. But if we start putting our focus on God and what he's done for us, it'll get smaller and smaller until our lifestyle and our behaviour become one. And then the people of the world will look and see that there is a difference in us. So as we look ahead to the book of Titus and what comes in the coming weeks and months, may we come with hearts that are overwhelmed with thankfulness for what God has done for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Paul to write to the believers, these young believers in Crete, um, to know how to spot false doctrine and prophets, how to behave, how to live for you, and how to pursue good works. And yet, Father, that is so relevant to us in this day and age. When the world declares self the God, and yet we hold you and lift you up high, and sometimes we're sorry, we compromise, we get influenced by their messages, and yet we want to stand firm as believers. We want to go forth in our uh, daily workplaces, in our lives, with the message of hope that you have for all people, that you have rescued us, that you've lifted us out of that, uh, the Mary clay and set our feet upon a solid foundation. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for what he has done for us. Thank you for all these wonderful things that were mentioned. Hope, grace, peace, your, the, the promise, the faith and the knowledge of the truth, godliness, all these things that greatly benefit us. We just thank you for that. So God, just be with us now as we continue to lift your name and praise. Amen.